before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, our man in Seattle, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today down there in the Caymans? Down in the Caymans. I am under house arrest for a couple more days. I have my tracker well, that's, bracelet on. Well, that's a step in the right direction, maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> Many people have said this should have happened years ago. But I've only got a couple of days left now before I'm allowed back out into the gen pop. Despite my, uh, my negative COVID test uh, before I got on the plane, my negative COVID test when I landed on the plane and my vaccine, that's not enough. I still have to quarantine. Well, I'm disappointed days. to see that there you are in your own place and you're not wearing a mask. What's wrong with you? Well, you're right. You're right. But I, but I have got I have got plastic sheeting covering the microphone on the computer just in case any cooties come through it from you. Well, that mate, we have a we have we have a good friend of both of ours joining us today uh, in our quest to figure out the end game, and that is uh, Simon Mikhailovich. Simon Mikhailovich is a dear friend of. Both of us, I've known Simon for a long, long time and uh, through mainly, a, firstly, a friendship and latterly through his work with uh, the first the Tocqueville Bullion Reserve and now the Bullion Reserve. So I think instead of you and I waxing lyrical, Fleck, we should get Simon to come on. What do you think? Yeah, let's dive into a slight variant of the end game. Exactly right. Simon, my friend, it's been way, 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 way too long since you and I have had a chance to chat. Good to see you. Great to see you guys. Thank you for having me. You guys know each other well, so there's no need for any introductions and uh, so much to talk about. I mean, you know, as Bill and I have kind of navigated this endgame journey, which which began with a you know, very broad concept, we've kind of pulled out various threads to yank on and, and we've gotten to one which we thought you're the perfect person to talk about. And that is, um, you know, the endgame of monetary systems necessarily involves, in many cases, the end game of nation states. And, and, and because of your experience with one such nation state in, in the Soviet Union, which we've you know, seen the end of that state as it was, we thought, who better to come on and talk about how that potentially might play out in Western democracy. So, so thanks for coming along and, and joining the conversation with us. Sure. Great to be here. A little sad to talk about this, but I guess we have to reality yeah well i mean look, look, look exactly it, it, it is the reality and it's i don't think it's anything anybody wants to kind of think about but that's the danger is not thinking about these things right because if they happen anyway you, then you you're screwed so let me let me just let me throw out a hanging curveball for you simon sure uh there are a, a lot of trends that are at play today censorship the whole thing about canceling people and rewriting history tearing down statues and regardless of the motives of the individual or person involved, when you look at it across the spectrum, I, I find it quite disturbing because it's what I've, you know, I've read about things that occurred in other totalitarian regimes and in particular mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. So how do, how do you process this after having seen that your family fled it and now we're on a, what looks to be a bad path here at least, at the moment, how do you think about that and what do you plan to do about it, if anything? Well, uh, A, I'm very upset, obviously, because we took tremendous pains to escape from the Soviet Union at a very high cost, uh, you know, full expropriation, losing everything, leaving everybody behind, you know, to come to a place that at the time felt like nirvana, relatively speaking anyway. Uh, you know, just drunk on freedom. And then to see uh, very similar trends and developments uh, is very sad. And it's not just my view. I, I, you know, some of my friends who have come here like I did in the 70s, you know, pretty much all feel the same. Uh, we've seen this movie before. Now, as you know, the opening line of uh, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina is all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So I guess the financial translation of that, nobody asks why the price is going up because you don't argue with success. But everybody wants to do a post-mortem or whatever, a complete analysis on a failure. And then, of course, every failure has its own peculiar circumstances or particular circumstances. 
But that doesn't really uh, change the fact that it's, you know, failure is a failure. And in, in the family sense, it all ends in divorce, however you get there. So the outcome is the same. So what concerns me here, obviously, here being in the United States and in the Western world, is a lot of very similar trends. They're all different. You can't compare the Soviet Union to the United States. I mean, it's just not the same place. We're starting from a completely different uh, economic, uh, or we started, I should say, from a completely different economic uh, plane, much higher. So it takes us longer to dissipate our wealth because we have so much of it to dissipate, if you will. It takes you a long, longer time. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the outlines, if you will, are are very disturbing. I, I can give you many examples. What, what, so what, how did the Soviet Union go down just in three words or less, basically, or three sentences or less? I mean, you had stagnation, you had corruption, you had disruption uh, in the rule of law, you had loss of confidence in the uh, governing philosophy or whatever you want to call it, in the idea uh, that communism, whatever, people stopped believing anything that the government was saying. Then they stopped believing anything that the press was saying. Uh, then they stopped respecting the government. I mean, if you look at the videos, I was already gone by then, but if you look at the videos from the 80s, when Gorbachev came to power and all of a sudden you see people getting up in parliament, uh, Russian parliament, and basically, uh, you know, castigating Gorbachev for being completely out of reality, I mean, they used to take people take people out and nobody ever heard from them again for doing stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, it became possible. Uh, this whole thing with what we're observing with 24-hour news, I mean, as the perestroika got going, I mean, people were glued to the TVs. They couldn't believe the stuff that they were seeing. I mean, it was it was completely out of their experience. I mean, anything sounds familiar so far? I mean, you're, <laughs> any parallels you're seeing? So we're, yeah, we're seeing all of about. it. We're seeing all of it. So loss of faith in the system, uh, rampant corruption. And then there's this feeling that develops uh, that uh, in the Soviet Union developed, you know, as I was growing up in the 70s. But then basically it's like, OK, so if the system is corrupt, then I can steal anything I want, because if they're stealing from me, why should I why should I be any different? So there's a complete loss of morality. And by the way, you know, when, when you see all these Russian organized crime uh, and how effective it is and how pervasive it's become uh, post-collapse of the Soviet Union and global and the hacking and all of that. I mean, that has deep roots in the Soviet Union and in this um, ethos of, you know, uh, essentially the better you can screw the government, uh, the more uh, clever and successful you would be. Because that became the measure. I mean, they're trying to stick it to me. Well, guess what? We're going to figure out how to stick it to them. And so all this talent, all this uh, creative entrepreneurial juice, instead of going into legitimate stuff, you know, went into essentially uh, all sort of criminal activities or illegal activities, you know, to, to uh, rig the system. Um, and so that's a legacy of that type of a situation. Well, we're seeing all that again here. I mean, you know, bad problems uh, cannot be solved with terrible solutions because you get horrible outcomes. I mean, that's that's what happens. So I'm observing here is what I'm saying. A lot of similar things. Loss of faith in government. This uh, that uh, Grant that had a podcast recently, you know, this financial nihilism, and it's not just financial, this financial anarchism, which is sort of almost like uh, institutionalizing these ideas that you can be ruthless, stateless, um, you owe nothing to anyone, uh, you know, uh, taxes are here to screw me, the system is here to screw me, and therefore I'm out to screw the system. That is a dissolution of civil society as we know it. Uh, and even though we're living through it and, and, and it's, we're not in pandemonium at the moment, but these are the symptoms. I mean, these are all the types of things that, you're, that I have observed there. And also economic stagnation. A lot of this has to do with economic stagnation because at some point, the majority of the people say, I mean, this is not working for me. Uh, the, the status quo is not working for me. And so they start yeah. looking for solutions. And unfortunately, history is very cruel about that. Because Czar was terrible. I mean, it was it was really for most people, except for uh, the elites. It was a very tough system. 
uh, authoritarian. There was no freedom of any kind, uh, corrupt, uh, controlled. And the impulse uh, to fix that ended up being channeled into Bolshevik revolution, which was, you know, exponentially more horrible than the problem they were trying to solve. Uh, the the dissolution or essentially the failure of democratic state in Germany in the 1920s has led to Hitler being elected because people wanted trains run on time. And guess what? He made trains run on time. But like at what cost? So I think what we're observing here is the stuff that revolutions are made of. And I'm not prophesying or predicting revolution. I, I don't know what happens. I'm just saying that the patterns and the symptoms that we are that I am observing right now, and I'm happy to get into any depth on any of them because I think these are factual observations. These are not like some ideas. Most people, I think, yeah. intuitively Thank have you. already concluded or understand what's going on. Um, the unfairness of it and 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 the you know kleptocracy that's going on and all that. You know, we're we're seeing responses to that, and I think responses, unfortunately, the ones I'm seeing now are just as bad is the problems. So you can use as an example this whole crypto um, uh, development that we're seeing now, which is an idea that we need to abandon uh, financial institutions uh, and, and the uh, government money because it's corrupt and, and it's not working for our benefit. And therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to decentralize fraud and rapacity uh, in answer to concentrated fraud and rapacity. This is a grassroots popular response of people. The same thing with GameStop and all these other uh, things we've recently seen with uh, Robinhood. This is a popular response to the concentrated uh, criminality that's been created in the financial system and complete uh, ineffectiveness of the law enforcement, of the laws that we all know about. I mean, you know, we know the antitrust laws are in the books, and yet yeah. here the oligarchies ruling the media you know, the technology, uh, supposedly these platforms that were there to connect people and to enable everybody to connect directly to everybody, it turns out that they're just as centralized as anything or more centralized than anything. We've seen banks paying billions and untold billions of of, of fines for criminal uh, behavior, you know, money laundering, uh, rigging markets, trading against customers. It's all in the papers. I mean, it's all in the... um, consent decrees that these institutions have signed with the Justice Department and with the SEC. So the crypto, I think, is a popular response to that. And this nomad capitalism idea is the wealthy people's response to that. Yeah, so let's all move to Puerto Rico. We pay no taxes. We, uh, you know, we don't owe anything to anybody. And then we're going to get a passport from some island nation where we will never go, but we're going to have houses in three different places and we're never going to be anywhere. So all these ideas are rooted in, in, in the same kind of thing where people feel like they're being not treated fairly for whatever reason. But their attempts at answers to these are wrought with just as dangerous consequences as the examples that we saw in the 20th century. I mean, I, I see the symptoms. I see them all over the place. Uh, the the uh, press not being the fourth estate, but essentially it's all becoming one estate, speaking with one voice uh, and a very specific voice, very specific agenda that some people agree and some people don't agree with. But that's there's no diversity of opinion uh, in the majority of the press, the marginalization of people who are trying to speak the truth. So none of this is really new, neither in this country uh, nor in the world. And yes, I, I'm I'm very concerned about it. Well, Simon, there's, there's so much to dig into there. It's, it's difficult to know where to start, frankly. But let's go back to the Bolshevik Revolution. Let's talk about that. Because I, I think many people listening to this will understand most likely the history of you know, post-World War One Germany into World War Two Germany. That's the kind of history we get taught at school. And I think it's important to remember that at the time, you know, people talk about the United States. This could never happen in the United States, for example. But, you know, Germany was a similar nation to the United States of its time in terms of a big, very democratic, Western, civilized nation, right? It was one of the most powerful countries on earth. So, so, but let's go back to the Bolshevik revolution and just give people a little history lesson on that because, because I think it is important to understand that particular example better. Yeah, and let me just add one other element to that. As you weave the story, Simon, one big question I have is, you know, how do we know if we're past the point of no return? I don't happen to think that's the case here in America yet, but 
based on your understanding of how all these things played out, what might we look for to try to decide if we're past the point of no return? Hopefully that's way premature, but anyway. Sure. Well, just let me address that right away because then we, we get into the other thing, uh, into the Bolsheviks. Um, I, I think we're past the point of no return, but let's understand what the return to what. I mean, you can't walk into the same water twice. I mean, we know that. So we cannot return to America of the 50s. That was the Trumpian idea that we're going to just make America great again. We can't do that. We can make America great, period, in a way that it may be great in the future. But it's not again. It's not the same thing as before. So we cannot go back to where we were. What the hope is, is that this does not devolve into a complete disaster, but gets sufficiently bad that uh, cooler heads would prevail. Because fortunately, we have uh, a constitution on which we can fall back on. And the other thing is that, um, and this is an idea that sort of came to me the other day, is like a lot of people worry or say like this is all going to devolve into some violence and complete loss of control, failure of the state. Well, the flip side of the bad thing, which is the security state that the United States has built over the last 20 years, which obviously, I mean, I don't like for reasons that I came from in a country which had tightly controlled population techniques or population control techniques. But the flip side of that was that the Soviets, the Russian state did not fall apart when the Soviet Union fell apart. That even though the system crumbled and the banking system crumbled and finance crumbled and a lot of things crumbled, and yes, there was like the 1930s in the U.S., there were gang murders of each other mostly. Uh, you know, uh, the, the gangs were fighting for, for, for control of businesses, of the new wealth that was being created. The state did not collapse because it had, it had all these security, repressive security measures in place. And so if, the, if this is a silver lining, if I can say it's a silver lining, then I think that uh, the fact that we've created this kind of state here, on the one hand, is terribly pernicious. On the other hand, potentially, uh, is a stabilizing, physically stabilizing force uh, that may help the transition without violence and like literally people killing each other on the streets kind of thing, okay? But going back to the Bolsheviks, Bolshevik in Russian means uh, of the majority, because uh, as opposed to Menshevik, which is the minority, who were more like social democrats. So these people were an extreme uh, faction uh, of the social democratic movement and social justice movement of the time. And there were various parties. There were social revolutionaries. There were constitutional monarchists. There were, uh, you know, communists who were not Bolsheviks, who were like, like Trotskyites, the, the different different factions. And then there was Lenin, who was a political operative, whose brother was executed uh, by the Tsarist regime for uh, participating in a plot to kill the Tsar. And um, he said, we're going to go a different way and uh, formed a political movement that took, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years to germinate. Uh, They tried a revolution in 1905, which was suppressed. It didn't work. And then it was as as the pandemic now, and as a lot of times, there's an event that happens that catalyzes uh, the situation. It acts as an accelerant. And in that case, it was World War I. So World War I, which the, the Tsarist government was not, uh, equipped to fight properly, and that caused tremendous disenchantment. And so people were ready for somebody who'd come and say, "We're going to fix it for you." And so what the Bolsheviks said: all land to the peasants, factories to the workers, peace for all, equality. I mean, how can you not go for that? I mean, what's you know, how, how could people who are desperate in in their in their t- t- torment? Uh, you know, deprived of ability to make a living, deprived of normal uh, social welfare, deprived of whatever, ability to live with decency would not go for something like that. And of course they did. This is where the danger is because the social justice movement is not one 
person or not one type of ideology. I mean, it's a it's a sort of a tent, right? And what happens is when a group like that or a coalition like that gains uh, primacy or gains traction in political dis- discourse, what happens is it's the extreme wings of these types of movements is where people are willing to go the distance to do things other people are not willing to do. And that's where the situation is fragile enough where people like that can come forth. It's the same thing with Hitler. I mean, he was elected democratically. Uh, you know, he, he didn't, it was not a coup d'etat. He was elected and then he performed a coup d'etat because he was willing to kill his opponents, literally. And that's what the Bolsheviks were willing to do. And that's the danger in these situations because destabilization under a banner uh, that makes sense to a lot of people, uh, but also encompasses some extreme elements, opens the path for these extreme elements to potentially gain primacy in that situation. And unfortunately, as we are watching what's going on in our country, you know, I'm not going to name names, but everybody can form their opinions as to who is who in this type of um, theater play. But we can identify people for all of these roles. And, and it was the social democratic movement that supported the Bolsheviks because they felt like, okay, so here are these people who can deliver victory for all of us by going the extra step. And the extra step is justified because the injustice is so ter- terrible. And so, you know, this bad situation turned into an exponentially bad situation, which is so much for the exponential future that I keep hearing about. <laughs> so that's the that's the danger, I think. So so this idea of, uh, you know, Bill asked if we were past the turning point. Um, you, when you look back at this and you... You said you think we are past the turning point. So, so what? What do you think that turning point was? Where? How did we cross that Rubicon? And and what do you think happens now because of that? Well, I, you know, I think we crossed the Rubicon in 1971. Uh, the reason I say that <laughs> it's not an ideological statement about the gold standard. It's simply the reason uh, we had to go off the gold standard is because we essentially went bust in the 60s. We engaged in the Great Society and the Vietnam War, which in retrospect, we could not afford. And it's easy to see how a country like ours would make a mistake like this, because we were riding so high after World War II. Uh, We didn't realize, perhaps at the time, that we were benefiting from essentially uh, complete elimination of the industrial base and all competitors of ours and got a monopoly for 20 years to produce goods and sell to the world. And we thought that that would continue, but it didn't continue. And once we went off the gold standard uh, and started printing money, then that provided an ability to defer maintenance, if you will. It's like people who are in the real estate business understand what deferred maintenance means. And when they buy a property that has a lot of deferred maintenance, you you have many problems which you will not discover until later, usually, not when not at the inspection. And so, and so, um, I think that that's really where we where we turned the corner, and we've been, and that's my problem with what's going on. So once we got off the gold standard, we essentially created uh, infinite elasticity uh, in money and credit. Uh, it's like with any addiction, it starts small, right? You you think you can control it, a few drinks, and then more drinks, and then more drinks. And then eventually, you think you're in control, but anybody looking outside at you knows you're not in control. Uh, and that's kind of where I think we are. And we, we were in control for a while. But I recently, in the last two weeks, I have reread the uh, parting speech of Eisenhower which I invite everybody to read. It's a very short speech. It's obviously available online. It's, it's a speech that he gave upon leaving the office exactly uh, 60 years ago, January 1961. And everybody knows that speech about, uh, from the line about the military-industrial complex. But that's not the only thing he said. 
Actually, it's probably the last fundamentally sound and wise political speech by an American president that has anyone given. And what he said was, we have to understand that we have never had a standing army in this country. We have never had a standing military uh, industry in this country. Uh, the government has never subsidized research in this country. We are set, we've set up a system now where massive amounts of public funds are being channeled into private hands. And this creates uh, a very dangerous dynamic between private interests and public interests, conflicts of interests, which obviously lead to corruption, which they have. He warned against taking shortcuts to fix immediate problems at the expense of long-term disasters. None of this is unpredictable or invisible. You just have to step back, read some history, uh, look at the look at the parallels, and realize that we're not unique. We're, this is this has been going on for thousands of years. The problem with all this, humans don't change. Our human nature is is very consistent. We're wired genetically in a certain way. And we're trying to use means of technology and other things like as a crutch to change ourselves and think that we're going to behave differently. Just, just if I have this one more drink, you know, I'll never do this again. Kind of thing, right? We, we, right now, we can't stop drinking because we're going to go into a coma. So we can't go into a coma. So let's, we're going to keep drinking for a while. So when you ask me point of no return, it's when we decided to untether ourselves from economic reality and the laws of physics and move ourselves into the laws of faith-based initiative, essentially, which is because we started spending our trust instead of spending our resources. So that's why I think we're, there's a point of no return, meaning that you cannot reset the system. You cannot go back to the normalcy without some drastic changes, which would be tremendously painful for a lot of people. I, there's just, I, don't, I just don't see how that the math doesn't work otherwise. It just doesn't. So, so, so let, let me ask you, I know the answer to this, but there will be people here that don't, because I, you know, I think any time anybody says something along the lines of it all went wrong in 1971, it's, it's, it's quite common for people to write you off as a gold bug. And I know the journey you've taken, but for the, for the people that don't, just explain, because you, you were at the center of the credit system. You weren't in the gold business for you know, the vast majority of your career. But I think it's it's important for people to understand that. So just just walk through your journey from the credit side of things to the gold side of things, why you suddenly connected those dots and what you went to do about it. Because it wasn't like you've sat there this whole time thinking, ah, if it wasn't for 1971, the world would no, be a much no, better no. place kind no, of thing. No, no, and, no. And, and listen, no. I came here in 1978. Uh, I worshipped this, this this system. I, you know, went, I worked my way through college. I worked my way through business school. I, I, uh, I worked in the investment business. I started my own business in 1998. It was a credit business. Uh, it had to do with collateralized debt obligations, which is how I learned uh, about what was going on in the financial system. And that's when I really realized uh, that the, the entire credit provisioning infrastructure of this country has been perverted essentially by technology. And in, this, in that case, it was the ratings technology. It was trying to quantify the unquantifiable and essentially abdication of responsibility by the end investors, which if you just fast forward what's going on in the ETFs and the passive investing, I mean, that's a direct line from the rating agencies. The, the whole idea that somebody else can tell you or can somehow through some algorithm can fix it all for you so you don't have to think about it, that's total nonsense. Credit risk, is, is it's like energy. I mean, it, it doesn't disappear. You can, you can shuffle it into different places. You can shove it under the rug for a while, but you can't eliminate it. You just can't. And so uh, this is what I saw. Uh, uh, synthetic CDOs are essentially where vehicles for people to make tons of money from recharacterizing something that had a lot of risk into something that they positioned as having no risk uh, and putting some stamp, some fancy technological explanations as to why it didn't have any risk. So when I saw that um, and then realized that I need to be on a different side of this equation, that I need to take advantage of it from, from the distressed side and from the short side, 
which is what we did in from 2004, distressed, post-2000, credit bust, and then 2006 to, th- to 2008, uh, you know, from the short side and the credit default swaps and, and then the mortgages and then buying distressed mortgages. But it, it was so I did not really think about gold at all until about 06. I mean, not even not not even a thought about it. So it was only when I came to the conclusion with my partner at the time that the system was unsustainable and was heading for a crash in the like immediate future. Did I say to did I step back and say to myself, wait a minute, I'm I'm watching this from the front rows. I mean, I see what the banks are doing. I see all these off balance sheet vehicles that they're creating this massive amount of leverage and derivatives that nobody understands. They, I see how they've disintermediated um, real investors by, you know, fooling them with these labels, uh, AAA and this and that. And uh, I said, you know, I mean, what, what did George Bush say? Like this sucker can go down or something like this in 2008? Yeah. I, and I, and I yeah. said to myself, this sucker can go down. I mean, it really can. And I, and I said to myself, from a personal standpoint, you know, I, I need to buy a little bit just to have some insurance in case this really goes bad. In the meantime, I was fully engaged in the financial system and the credit investing, and we had a hedge fund. It was a very successful business. But it was not until 2011, really, when when I said, you know, I, after the bailouts and after what happened happened and after I realized that, you know, our shorts, uh, I'm not complaining on getting paid there, but I realized that, you know, the... Yeah, we had multiple. We had multiple counterparties, uh, be, precisely because we were worried about counterparty risk. What I realized is that the system actually went bankrupt. The financial system, private financial system, and that without the government bailout, it would have been obvious to everybody within a matter of days or weeks that it, it in fact happened in substance, and that really gave me a big shock, if you will. And then after 2011, uh, realizing that nobody was going to fix anything, that this was all a patch-up job, and that instead of using that, you know, wake-up call, we just doubled down on the cheeseburgers, uh, I said, well, this is not going to, this is really not going to work out well. And that is when I started focusing on gold and on how to store gold and where, what, how to own gold and what to do with it and why gold Right. So, no, I had no, absolutely no ideas about gold. I'm a financial professional. I've been doing what I've been doing before I was got interested in gold for 25, 27 years already. So it wasn't like this is something uh, ideological. And then I started looking. And really what I came to gold is not from the gold bug, if you will, point of view, but simply from a common sense point of view and my background in the Soviet Union saying what what is out there that's independent from the system? So what is independent from this human folly that we're observing here? And frankly, what I realized is that gold was the only financial asset that was not a human endeavor. And that's probably why, because that's why it's still around after thousands of years, where all other financial endeavors and financial assets have come and gone. Because humans have a tendency to, you know, get over exuberant about things. Greed runs rampant and things go bad. And then and that, that and that is really the genius of a private enterprise system, a free market system, is that it 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 modulates that urge by periodic debacles that bring everybody back to sanity and it's like forest fires, you know. That's basically what it is. It's it's deferring. It's deferred maintenance. If you keep deferring maintenance, then the building can come can come down one day. And that's why that's why I say 1971 because then I realized looking back that was the moment when we went down the path of unlimited resources. And the same thing happened in the Soviet Union. I mean, they went down the path of unlimited state where they had all the money in the world. They thought they could just support these unprofitable enterprises. They could do anything forever. And then, of course, they couldn't. And that's why I, I'm thinking in 1971, not because I think the gold standard is some sort of a panacea to anything, but some constraint on human propensity to get overexcited, overspend, get into too much debt, and 
spend beyond one's abilities, I think that's as natural as anything for anybody. Everybody understands that. And the only thing that prevents anybody or governments or systems from doing that is running out of something resources. But you don't route, you don't run out of electronic money that you can create out of nowhere in unlimited quantities. So that's the problem. They're never going to run out of that. We're going to run out of confidence is what we're going to run out of. And we're already doing it. And that's what these symptoms are all about, is that we're losing confidence in the system. And that's the problem. So, so Simon, so, you know, given your experience, your understanding, not, not just from experience, but from your understanding of history, what happens now, do you think? What does the end game for, let's call it the West, look like? Because it feels like it's playing out in slow motion, but, but how do you see it playing out from here? Well, okay, so let's start with the money because that's kind of, the, that's the hard part of it. So, you know, we, we have unsustainable financial situation. We have, you just did an interview with uh, Peter Zehan, I think, talking about, uh, I, am I pronouncing his name yeah, correctly? Zion, yeah, Zion. Talking about the uh, population uh, dynamic, you know, the turn in population. We are going from the world of population growth into the world of population flattening uh, growth or contraction. We are definitely there in the um, uh, in the Western world. The idea that the United States can skate uh, because we have immigrants, I think, is suspect to me because uh, if the Western Europe and Russia and all these in China and all these other places implode is a big word, but you know suffer dramatic reversals and instability. Uh, in today's world with today's supply chains, I don't see how the United States just walks through that like nothing happened. So our financial arrangements are unsustainable. And therefore, either through inflation or through deflation, the assets and liabilities have to be brought into alignment. I mean, it's as simple as that. There are less baby boomers uh, paying into the system and uh, investing in the stock market, and there are more of them who are going to be taking the money out. I mean, it's just not will be, are. So that that is baked in the cake. There's nothing we can do about that. Demographic is destiny. All of our economic systems are geared towards growth. All of our leverage is geared towards growth. All of our valuations are geared towards growth. If we don't have aggregate growth, this is everything has to be revalued and rearranged. So the first thing that I think is absolutely inevitable and mathematically unavoidable is reset of values, which is to say that because every dollar of debt is somebody's dollar of assets, so either the debts are worth a dollar or they're not worth a dollar. So then if the, if the people cannot uh, retire their debts or repay their debts, uh, then the people who think they have assets don't have as many assets as they think they do. Uh, so this is a major redistribution of wealth from uh, debtors, I'm sorry, from savers to debtors. But the debtors don't really win because they already spent the money. So that's very easy to infer from what's going on. What's very not easy to infer is what are the political implications of that? Is that a move towards totalitarianism? Is that a uh, some sort of a conflagration that pulls us from the brink and let's cooler heads prevail. Hard to see, but not impossible. Look, I'm wedded to democracy, and I want liberty and democracy. But mayhem and oppression, uh, you know, there's a difference here between financial debacle and a literal breakdown of society. I'm hoping that we do not go that way. And one of the reasons I'm hoping that is because I think there, are, unfortunately, there are these instruments there, but that works both ways. It's, it's, it's oppressive, but at the same time, it can keep the situation together. So the real question is, who controls this apparatus? Who controls this population control mechanisms? Who controls the militarized police? Who controls this security surveillance state? Who is in charge of all that? And to which ends they put it? Is it to stabilize the situation and bring us out of the woods as the fourth turning? Or is it radical right or left wing uh, regime or government that uh, uses it towards very bad ends. 
And that's that's the danger. That's where we are. It's a very it's it's a very dangerous moment. It really is. And that's what and, and that's where, you know, that's how I ended up with gold, really. Tangible things are as certain as it gets. I mean, not that they're 100% certain either, but they're as certain as you can get. How repressive the result may be, I mean, who knows? Uh, I come up from a system that was extremely badly repressive. And obviously, I grew up in it. Um, and, and I had a happy childhood because I didn't know any better. Look, my grandmother survived World War One, Russian Revolution, military communism, civil war, uh, Stalinist repressions, uh, World War II. Uh, three of the four grandparents survived the siege of Leningrad, lost all their money in the currency reform of 1947, lost all their money in the currency reform of 1961. And so I was born in 59. So I, I caught sort of the tail end of that Soviet story where it was as stable and as benign as it could have been out of all its history, you know, uh, the preceding history. So I don't see what's coming in as apocalyptic terms as people who may listen to me and say, this is like, I can't even think about any of this. This kind of happens, you know, it happens in, in a lot of places. Look at Argentina. I mean, my God, it happens to them every few years. I just think that it's it's something we have to steal ourselves for. It's something that we have to prepare ourselves for, but it's at the same time, it doesn't mean that we need to stop living our life because we don't know when exactly it comes. We don't know what form it takes. And uh, I mean, I, I wish I had an answer for your question. I mean, I, you know, I just wish I did. Partially, how this goes is going to be determined by events yet to play out that we, we, we could handicap what certain. Correct. Things may happen, but as you mentioned, if something sort of catastrophic that that comes out of the blue, some geopolitical mess, could could totally change the path we're on uh, for worse or perhaps for better as well. So all we can do is be aware that these trends are potentially quite dangerous and be alive to either an accelerant in that direction or perhaps something that, signs, that suggests maybe we're kind of going back towards the middle, right? We, we kind of have to wait and see how things develop. Yes, but look, I mean, look what happened with this pandemic. I mean, I think yes, that is the accelerant. Yeah, yeah. I honestly do. I mean, I think that's the, the, that's the curveball to the financial system and sudden acceleration of money printing, uh, sudden acceleration of this loss of faith, uh, which I see crypto as a symptom of, as a prime symptom of. Uh, this nihilism and this rejection of stability and of, of nation state. Uh, well, plus, plus to, uh, censorship and totalitarianism, you know, censorship by the social media. Yes. Yeah, that, that accelerated a place I never thought we'd see. And then the power grab on by some of these governors where they make idiotic policies on a whim and they micromanage everything. So when you say it that way, I mean, COVID has accelerated some of the Worst possible trends, if you believe that the founding principles of this country were the were the right way. I mean, all these accelerants seem to be going in the wrong direction. There can be no question in anybody's mind that the founding principles of this country are the right way. It, we have to be realistic that the founding principles have never been implemented exactly yes. the way they sound. So again, we, we have to be realistic. We can strive for perfection, but we're human. The America has never been the, you know, the rosy colored city on the hill that everybody paints it as. But we cannot say that there's any precedent in history for such unmitigated and fast success and such tremendous volume of success, if you will, uh, economically, politically, ideologically, uh, such compelling idea that completely, in, you know, took the minds of people. I mean, prior to, look at the, you know, 9-11, I mean, the outpouring of support for America. Look what we did to our reputation in 20 years. Yeah. I mean, look what we did to ourselves, you know, in the world. So, yes, I, I think what we saw last year, if there's a positive in that, it's that a lot of trends that were percolating under the surface have been brought to the surface. And we now can see things better for what they are. We can see these platforms for what they really are. We can see the media for what it really is. We can see the politics for what it really is. Uh, we, can, we can see a lot of these things more clearly. And I think that that's positive in a sense that that maybe catalyzes us towards the, the end game. 
I think I think we need we need change, and I think change is coming, and it's it's already we're we're in the middle of it. We just don't see necessarily these things as for what they are, but they're terribly undermined. I mean, look at crypto, this nihilism and this and this rejection of not just of the state and, and elites, but it's also a rejection of professionalism, it's rejection of, of knowledge, it's rejection of experience, it's rejection of historical precedent, it's, re- it's rejection of everything. Because what people are doing in this space, you know, dis- distributed or whatever, uh, decentralized finance, I mean, what's missing here is what is finance? <laughs> yeah, I, I know what decentralized <laughs> means. But what is finance? I mean, finance is a profession like anything, and it's not an elitist profession. I mean, if, like we said, we talked before here, you, you've worked on Wall Street. And yes, you know, they're rapacious son of guns. But if, you, if you're on the trading floor, I mean, the, the number of people who are from uh, very humble mm-hmm. backgrounds, you know, it's, it's like it's, it's a total kaleidoscope of the kinds of people that are in that business. But taking essentially finance, which is credit, which is the way the, the world works, the way our business is financed, the way our industry is financed, the way our governments are financed, the way we're all living, and put it out there into nowhere for anybody. So it's basically, let's let's democratize fraud. I mean, let's everybody have a crack at it. Why, why should only the guys at the banks have a crack at it? Instead, so instead of cracking on the banks and fixing them and bringing them to heel, uh, let, let's just let's just open this to to everybody. Well, how does that solve anything? I mean, look look at what's going on in that space. Never, I'm sure there are great ideas there. I'm sure some of them will revolutionize something. But but look at the criminality that's going on. Look at the fraud and and the claims and and the rapaciousness of some of these people. I mean, how is this different from anything that you and I and Bill have seen in our careers in this financial business? They're just different characters. Right. Are they doing right. anything different? I don't think so. No. A lot of them. That's that's my that's you know I think people need to understand that. But you've brought us perfectly full circle there you know we started off talking about you know this idea that you know if you can't beat them join them kind of thing if the state were going to be mendacious and pernicious and fraudulent then we can do the same thing and you and you've brought us right back there with the most modern technology we have available to us in finance to the exactly the same conclusion i.e instead of bringing the banks to heel and sorting out the fact that nobody seems to get punished we'll just create our own wild west and we'll we'll just do the same thing we'll rig, rig the system our own way that's that. That's the problem. We have this interesting uh, set of circumstances whereby there's all these trends that we're, we're talking about, and then there's a complete abdication of responsibility, in my mind, on the part of this uh, SEC. I mean, they haven't done their job in 30 years or so when we look at what they've let go on, and nor has the Fed. Forget the printing money, but remember, they were supposed to regulate the investment banks. Remember, that was part of what Greenspan advocated for when they repealed Glass-Steagall, so they didn't do their job. So we have, in addition to all these trends that are going in, in, in a dark direction, you have this lawlessness that's that's been allowed by the SEC. I mean, it's just such an incredible cross-currents of, of, of bad trends that are intersecting. Well, so Bill, you say, are we, have we passed the point of no return? So here comes Trump, right, with the rhetoric that Wall Street is corrupt, that this is a bubble, <laughs> that we need to fix this. He comes in. What does he do? Uh, he hires the you know he hires people from Wall Street, and nothing happens, right? And then he starts bragging how high the the stock market is. Uh, comes in Biden. Uh, what does he do? He, it, it, had anything changed? I mean, look at what's just going on early this year. I mean, where is the SEC? Where is the, where is any where are any of these people? What are they doing? Nothing. Nothing. We we hear of tether. We, you know this this the audit, suppose or whatever the uh, attestation, a certification of assertions that are backed by nothing, uh, and, and nobody does anything about it. Nobody does anything about it. Not in this administration. Not in that administration. Not in the previous administration. These administrations are not interested in fixing the problem. So we're beyond point of no return because. There will come a person who says, I will fix the problem. And the danger is, who is that person? How is he going to fix this problem? And, and, and what is his politics? Is he going to do this in the frame, the constitutional framework of the United States? Does he bring us back to where we need to be? Or does he do it by the methods that 
were used in the 20th century in a very similar time situ- type situations, you know? And so that's what concerns me the most. And that's what drove me to gold. At, at least we know that uh, if a politician comes along who promises that uh, yes. he's going to make the trains run on time, we all know now to, uh, to run in the opposite direction. Look, mate, it's been a fascinating hour. I mean, there's so many moving parts to this. And of course, it's impossible to figure out how this thing plays out, which is why I, I felt it was so important just to get your historical perspective, just so people can listen to that and understand how it's played out before. And hopefully that helps people recognize some of the familiar signs and signals that we're seeing, not to say we're on the exact same path, but we're on a path in the same direction. And I think it's important that everybody realizes that. So thanks for sharing your um, your your experiences and your thoughts on the outcome of this. It's always a great pleasure when we get to talk and um, uh, we don't get to do it enough. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I got to say, Bill, you know, you you and I knew that this was going to be a completely different avenue to take, and it turned out to be exactly that. And and you know, you and I did barely any of the heavy lifting here. We just were able to sit back and listen to Simon talk about his experiences, and uh, you know, the parallels are there for everybody to listen to. I think. And I sort of feel like, you know, I don't want to make this political at all, but there are very disturbing trends in the country that kind of go against what you know the country was founded to be about. And that's why someone who's lived through a bad period, like Simon, who is very thoughtful and capable of discussing it, is useful. I mean, I want to believe we're not past the point of return in terms of, you know, the loss of free speech and some of the kinds of disturbing trends I see. He makes a very valid point about, you know, when you start printing money, kick the can down the road, it's a deterioration. And I hadn't thought of it from a closing the the gold window standpoint but he makes an excellent point but I, I find it very valuable from a food for thought standpoint yeah no I, I, I couldn't agree more and uh, you know the, the beauty of Simon is that uh, he, he spends so much time thinking about this and he just has a great way of, of kind of verbalizing um, his thoughts which is always a, a fascinating perspective to get well, all that, uh, all that remains is to is to thank you out there for listening. If you want to find out more about what Simon does, you should uh, go to bullionreserve.com. Uh, you'll find Simon's business there and uh, find out more about everything he does. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can do that very easily. It's at S underscore Mikhailovich. Uh, and that is M-I-K-H-A-I-L-O-V-I-C-H. S underscore Mikhailovich. Everything Simon puts out there is incredibly thoughtful and highly helpful. I always find it. Uh, Fleck, mate, it's been yet more fun. Uh, what do you say we do this again at some point? Uh, okay, talk me into it. All right, mate. Take care and good luck with the rehab. All right, thanks. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.